When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jack Farley and our guest, Peter Bookfar. Welcome, gentlemen. Here's what we're looking at. Uh, the story of the day that I've got my eye on is the rebound continuing. Uh, looks like equity indexes up across the board. Big winner on the day. Once again, second day in a row, Russell 2000 settling at 2,233 up 40 points, 39.63, uh, or up 1.81% on the day. Jack, what are you looking at? Well, earnings season is here, Ash, with Chipotle surging a whopping 11% today um, on strong digital sales as and Netflix uh, down 4% because it failed to meet expectations on uh, net income. Overall, Ash, Earnings have uh, continued to beat expectations at quite a fierce clip, um, arguably challenging uh, the, the narrative that the reflation argument is under attack. But we'll get into that. What else is on your radar, Ash? Jack, I'm looking at the bond market. Ten-year yields uh, once again, second day in a row. Yields rise, prices fall. Uh, looks like right now one spot two nine ish on the ten-year Treasury yield. Peter, let's throw this over to you. You've had some interesting analysis of both of these markets, the stock market, bond market. You're looking across assets. You've called these markets bipolar in a recent book report. Peter, how do you see what's happening right now in the context of the day's events? Well, it's amazing how we went from uh, Monday, where Delta was the, the main worry, and it just disappeared in a day, uh, being yesterday, and then carried through uh, to today where everyone piled into uh, the reopening trades again. So it, it is, um, as I wrote, bipolar, and it's confusing too. Uh, I, I'm of the belief that um, we're, we're, we're going to power through Delta and that it will certainly lead to uh, an uneven uh, back half of the year possibly uh, around the world as things get disrupted, and they probably will. But I feel like that we just have no choice but to work through it and that I don't want to get distracted by it from what I believe is really the main stage of inflation, where interest rates go and what how central banks respond to that. To me, that still remains the most important factors in trying to figure out uh, where markets go in the back half of this year. Yeah. Jack, jump in. I know you're a close reader of the book report. Uh, questions for Peter. Yeah, well, Ash, you are hosting this and Peter is the guest. I'm really just tagging along, but I have been reading Peter's report, the book report. Um, so uh, yeah, I've got my eye on inflation globally with South, uh, excuse me, South Korea um, posting its uh, producer price index, which jumped 6.4%. Um, but did bond yields go up? No. Likewise, in uh, Germany, we had a 
you really some stunning numbers out of there. Sorry, let me just pull me pull this up, which is that in June, they jumped 1.3% month over month, uh, uh, amounting to a six-month annualized increase of 13.2% for the producer price index. That is what uh, producers, companies are paying for the goods that they produce, which they ultimately pat, sell onto uh, consumers. And Ash, that, that is the highest monthly increase um, or well, it's, it's a it's the since uh, 2008. Um, so you know this, and that that by the way is in a country that is one has has some of the oldest people on earth. If you look at the median age, I think it's the fourth oldest on age. Which of course you know um, advanced people uh, populations that are older tend to be more deflationary because they want to buy bonds and they don't spend as much money. Um, so you know I've been reading a lot of of Peter's work. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm seeing um, a lot of signs that the inflation narrative is definitely not dead. Yeah. Peter, to Jack's point, what are your thoughts right now on inflation? Well, the interesting thing that, that Jack cites is that uh, at the wholesale level, at least, inflation is a global phenomenon. Uh, it's just in, in, in contrast, though, it's been more idiosyncratic on the consumer level. Japan, for example, printed their, their national CPI number just the other day, and it was still pretty muted. And uh, we are seeing that in other other countries, and China also, depending on if you can believe the data or not, uh, where it's more pronounced in the UK, it's more pronounced in the US. I do think it's going to pick up more steam in Europe at the, at the consumer level. Uh, I, I know everyone likes to harp on lumber prices and used car prices and you know cherry pick out what they what they don't like within CPI and say see it, it, it's just those but uh, tin for example hit a record high the other day uh, the CRB index raw industrials um, actually the CRB raw industrials index just the other day hit a, a fresh 10-year high and I don't think people appreciate what we're about to see in the rent component of both CPI and PCE uh, core logic today said that single family home rental increases are running at about six and a half percent year over year. Uh, that is going to surprise in the upside. So you show me a decline in used car prices, I'll show you a jump in in, in rent. And since that, and since housing is basically one third of CPI, uh, that will trump in importance uh, any moderation that we're going to see in used car prices. And I think cherry picking used car prices is missing the point. Every single good that is manufactured in this world is seeing major price pressures, whether that is because of shortages of, uh, of, of key inputs to that, higher commodity prices, and particularly uh, very aggressive shipping uh, cost increases where you know, the cost of getting in containers up five to six times. So it, just to say it's only one area because of a shortage of semis, there's a shortage of essentially everything. And now we're also going to see uh, what it means for wages and how companies are going to pass that on. And just some of the, you know, the conference calls I've listened to over the last couple of days, you know, there's no, there, there's really no message from companies that, yeah, things are about to calm down a lot. I mean, yeah, maybe there's some chatter that, you know, for every uh, auto executive saying that where I'm seeing a, an increase in semi-supply, I'm hearing about another factory that has to shut down. So I think that this drags well into 2022, and, and, and as I've said on the show before, there's nothing transitory about services inflation. It is always higher. So this debate is really about where the good side shakes, shakes out, and uh, I'm also of the opinion that just-in-time inventory is dead, so we're not going to go back to the same structural 
uh, inventory situation that we sat pre-COVID and decades pre-COVID. And right. that uh, if we're not going to have just in time, that means more inventory sitting on shelves, higher working capital needs, lower productivity, uh, and chances are uh, higher prices as a result. So um, don't just look at a few things. And, and again, I want to highlight rent uh, because that's going to start to reflect uh, the double-digit home price gains that we that we're seeing right now. Uh, well, it's a good thing I just signed my lease. Let me ask you this. Um, when you're talking about this changes in structural supply chains, is the idea here uh, that just-in-time inventory showed its weaknesses uh, during the pandemic through shortages uh, and the inability of supply chains and distribution chains to get those goods to consumers when they were most needed? And now we're going to see more inventory being held as a buffer, which will reserve from high, which will create higher working capital needs and be a drag on earnings? That, that's exactly right. Uh, and just in time, really just assume that every sort of piece of that assembly line was 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 well greased and that um, there was not going to be any any shortages. And, and, you know, that ship coming from Hong Kong to L.A. was going to make it on time. And if it got backed up, maybe it would be backed up by a day or two because of bad weather and nothing more than that instead of being backed up for weeks at a time. Uh, or even more. Uh, I mean, and you and you see the the negative economic impact. A lot of this is now happening, which gets to the whole uh, stagflationary discussion about whether we are sort of in that um, that situation and how long that's going to last. Because if you're a home builder and you can't get you know your, your HVAC system because there are delays, well then you can't finish the house. If you can't um, get you get electricians to to wire. Uh, the framing, well, then you can't uh, put up the sheetrock and everything gets gets backed up and bogged down. And uh, that, that's clearly what we've seen. And then that leads to shortages and leads to higher prices. And, and you know, I'm hearing stories and talking to people that we've now reached a point in the housing market where in some markets, consumers are saying, you know, no more. I can't handle these price increases. Uh, yeah. Now, private equity, that all cash buyer uh, that is buying a house because they want to re-rent it, well, they're uh, a little less price sensitive. But uh, for that natural family that wants to live in a house for that first-time buyer, uh, they're, they're saying enough is enough. And we saw that in the Michigan confidence number last week where right. buying pensions both for a home and a house are back to levels last seen in the early 1980s. So price matters. Uh, inflation is um, not so transitory. And uh, I think it's going to lead to, uh, I wish I was a fly in the wall at next week's Fed meeting. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Talking of which, uh, Peter, we're going to get to some of our viewer questions in just a few moments here. But if I were a viewer, this is the question that I would want to ask you. How do you understand what's happening at the long end of the curve? I was looking at the 30-year Treasury yield uh, a little bit earlier today. You know, Basically, it rolled down from late 2018 from about 3.4 at peak. Uh, then it bottomed at one spot, one nine-ish or thereabouts in August of uh, 2020. Uh, then we had yields back up again, rates doubled in this very short period of time, and then it rolled over again in March. 
What do you make of all of this movement in the curve? How do you interpret it? What do you think is going to happen going forward? Well, 2018 was interesting because you had the contractionary impact of the tariffs that basically sent the manufacturing sector into a recession around the world, uh, particularly in the U.S., at the same time that Powell was raising interest rates. So you saw the curve flattening. And then, of course, he backed off. And then you saw uh, the steepening. And then you, you know, roll into, into COVID. Uh, I think the yield curve here really started to flatten again on the day in mid-June when the Fed said that we are now talking about tapering and more people wanted to hike rates in 2022 rather than waiting till 2023. That was the perfect excuse to, to, to flatten the curve. You can look back QE1 on, QE1 off, QE2 on, off, QE3 on, off. Every time QE was on, the yield curve steepened. Every time it was off, the yield curve flattened. So there was just, to me, that the trade was, the Fed's going to hint that they're going to change policy soon. Uh, you, you flatten the curve. And then, of course, you throw in uh, the stagflationary stories we keep hearing and worries about have we reached peak growth. And then, of course, Delta. And that all combines for uh, the, the, this further flattening and, and, and big drop in the long end. Uh, but as you say, Ash, we did see a pretty sharp rise in rates uh, for the first three months of the year that I think discounted a lot of the inflation stats we see today. Yeah. So when trying to figure out what's the next big test for the bond market, uh, certainly the direction of Delta will matter uh, in, in, in dictating how uh, uneven this recovery is going to be or, or what sort of potholes we're going to uh, find ourselves having to drive around. Uh, but I think that if you see a few more months of of hot inflation, which I'm expecting, then that will heighten that discussion on temporary or not, and also pressure the Fed. You know, the thing with the Fed is that, unfortunately, uh, Jay Powell has institutional thoughts in his mind that if he wants this job to be renewed in February 2022, he's thinking, I can't screw this up. And Janet Yellen, at the same time, wants him to be purchasing as many treasuries as she's selling. Uh, so there's this very incestual situation between the Fed, the Treasury, and the White House uh, looking at the back half of this year. On the other hand, there's no question that the White House has gotten more defensive about inflation. Jay Powell has gotten uh, more defensive. You look at the, the testimony he gave in front of the House and Senate last week, he was asked about the inflation story a multitude of times. So the spotlight is on this inflation story because it's not just a Wall Street pontification discussion. It's a Main right. Street situation that the, the average person is now feeling. And that constituency is calling their Congress people and saying, what is going on with inflation? So Powell's got a really tough needle here to thread. Right. Uh, I, we, th so there'll be a difference between what they should do, and that's stop conducting monetary policy in July 2021, as if we were in July 2020. There's something just not consistent there. But at the same time, he's probably going to use the Delta excuse as a reason to, to wait. The problem with the Fed is that they think by waiting that the outcome is going to be somewhat different. And the outcome is not going to be different. At some point, the market's going to have a, a taper tantrum and a hissy fit. It's just inevitable. The problem this time around is that he's playing a much greater game of chicken 
with the markets because of this inflation story, which has something which is something that no central bank has really had to deal with uh, since uh, the the great financial crisis when when all of a sudden we had rates at zero and negative rates in QE uh, right. that that didn't really exist prior. So that was with the lack of inflation was sort of a free ride for them and license to to, to print and do whatever. Now that license has some points on it, and uh, I think that therefore they should be driving a little slower uh, and not doing the 200 miles an hour and the 55, maybe slow down to at least 150. You know, Peter, as soon as I jump off this call, I'm heading to the DMV in Harlem to get my driver's license uh, ID card renewed. Um, Talking of which, Jack, uh, jump in into the fast lane. Any questions? comments for Peter or thoughts to add? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to ask Peter if, as I believe you think, and as many anticipate Fed Powell and the dominant uh, people at the Federal Reserve on, on the market committee, if they remain dovish and they are not hawks, I would say, you know, um, uh, doves, doves don't have talents. And if they continue to do quantitative easing, how are you? And you know that for a fact. How are you positioning your portfolio? I know that you are because you are believe in inflation will be robust and um, you know permanent, or, or at least not transitory. You are by no means a fan of of bonds, but unlike an individual investor, you know you are managing serious money in the billions of dollars, and so you have to own bo- at least some portion of bonds. So how are you thinking about portfolio allocation as you anticipate um, the, the Federal Reserve next week? So, so the bonds that we own are more short duration. So that's our way of sort of being short the long end, uh, as opposed to having an outright bet against the long end. So I think uh, that if the Fed does not taper and is remains dovish, well, then you're going to get an unwind of the flattening yield curve because the Fed's about to taper trade. And you're going to get a re-steepening. You'll get a repeat of, of what we saw in the first quarter of this year, where the bond market said, Okay, Fed, well, we're not really happy with you running a hot economy. I don't like sitting at the beginning of the year, the tenure is at 90 basis points. I mean, what holder of a 90 basis point paper wants to hear their central bank yelling, we want to run things hot? So if the Fed sort of endorses, okay, let's run things hot next week, uh, even though we're seeing like in housing and, and autos running things too hot, you would quickly flame out, uh, then the yield curve is going to steepen again. And, uh, and the bond market is going to do the tightening for the Fed. So while the stock market, I'm sure, will have its initial reaction, oh, yeah, the Fed's not going to taper for a while, uh, I would not be surprised if the 10-year went straight back to the upper end of of its February-March range uh, if if, uh, the Fed uh, remains easy and doesn't hint at any tapering anytime soon. Jack, some decades from now, when you're a multi-billionaire investor and you write your memoir, can you please call it Doves Don't Have Talons? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll do it. (laughs) Um, Jack, uh, shifting gears here a little bit uh, from uh, the capital markets to the crypto markets, we were talking a little bit off air. I know you watched the interview that I did with Christine Kim. Did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, well, well, Ash, as you know, the crypto markets have been subject to a lot of volatility. And if you follow the headlines, um, one day it's crypto crashes, the other day it's crypto rebounds. I'm like, wait, the, the three-day change is it's been totally flat, you know, almost like bond yields. Um, so I, what I like about Real Vision, I think, is kind of a founding principle of Real Vision is that we go beyond just that day's price action and we actually try and understand 
the yeah. framework of, of how to invest. So I liked watching something that wasn't tied to, oh my God, Ethereum is up 10% in the past hour. Um, but yeah, how about you tell the audience, as you did the interview, you know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah, so it's an interview that talks about the underlying mechanics that are happening right now in Ethereum. Uh, EIP-1559, this is a change proposal for Ethereum, and also gets into a little bit uh, Ethereum 2.0, which is this major change uh, that's going to be coming uh, from proof of work to proof of stake uh, in the Ethereum space. Uh, Christine Kim is a research analyst at Coindesk. There are people who understand this. There are people who are good at explaining things. There are very few who are good at both. Christine Kim is one of them. If you're curious about Ethereum, it's a great interview to watch, especially if you're curious about what's going to be coming down the road uh, in the months and years to come for Ethereum. Uh, a great interview. Peter, let me ask you, are you interested in the crypto space? What are your thoughts there? I, I am very interested, and, and I'm trying to, to learn every week. Uh, what I'm, I'm coming around to is uh, I'm less interested about where the price of Bitcoin is and yeah. more interested in, in learning about DeFi and, and how this whole crypto infrastructure is being built out. Because in a way, whether Bitcoin's a 30,000, 30 bucks or 3 million, that infrastructure is going to get built out regardless. So in a way, to me, Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin is irrelevant. Now, as an asset class, as a store of value, well, to me, that's almost like a different conversation right now with all the advancements that that that, that crypto is is, is making. Uh, so that's where I'm really trying to learn more about. And and um, I have to say, I, I listened to some of the your, your your interviews, and some of the experts are speaking a, a different language that um, uh, I'm, I'm anxious to learn, but. It, it, some of it's still Greek to me, but uh, I, I, I am confident that it's here to stay. stay. I'm just trying to figure out uh, in, in what form and, and how it plays out. Pierre, I have no doubt you will soon be bilingual in crypto and capital markets and fluent in both. Uh, by the way, talk- I will say, sorry, I will say from a, since we have a lot of uh, you know, individual clients uh, that just a retail mindset we got a lot of calls about I should be buying Bitcoin when it was at sixty thousand, and now it's at thirty. I don't get the calls. Right. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, Jack, speaking of interviews uh, and to touch on some points that we were on earlier uh, about inflation, I know that you recently did an interview, I think it's actually live on the platform today, with Milton Berg, some pretty interesting and almost heterodox views about the relationships uh, between gold and inflation. Yeah, so Milton Berg is one of the most respected technical analysts in the game. You know, a lot of technical analysis that you see is just, oh, it's trading below its 50-day moving average, and that's kind of that. But he really, you know, he was the technical analyst for Stan Druckenmiller, Michael Steinhardt, George Soros. Um, so he shared a few secrets with me and, and the Real Vision audience. Um, and he actually is uh, very bearish on bonds and stocks, and we filmed uh, uh, last week, so that's interesting. But 
he, uh, in the clip, he shared a very interesting view about gold as a hedge for inflation. Everyone thinks that, oh, if inflation is coming, you want to buy gold. But he pointed out that if you take the, you know, admittedly, um, um, you know, chosen scenarios from 1980 to 2000, inflation run very hot, but gold uh, actually, I think, declined from $800 to, to below then. Um, so let's take a look. And then, yeah, let's I want to get Peter's take on it. Let's take a look. Very difficult to say that gold benefits from inflation. Very difficult to say that. And how, why do I say that? Gold peaked at $800 roughly in 1980, 81. Declined for 20 years into 2001. Declined from $800 down to $250 per ounce. During a period that the consumer price index doubled. So people assume inflation by gold. No. Gold anticipates inflation, and gold, during pre inflation, gold can go down. Now, of course, it'll be hyper, hyper, hyper inflation, like in Germany. If you own gold, you will keep up mostly to the inflationary, to the rate of inflation, you'll keep up with it. So you're not gonna make money on a real basis owning gold and inflation. Gold is just gonna be an asset that's going to keep up with inflationary prices. Well, there you have it. I know, Peter, you watched the entire interview earlier today. What were your thoughts? It was excellent. Uh, so with respect to his comments on gold and inflation, well, first of all, inflation always goes higher. There's really no such thing as deflation. Uh, and even in Japan, if you look back at the last 30 years, Japanese CPI has averaged about zero. So it's actually true price stability. What we're talking about here is rate of change. So to uh, his point is that after a huge rate of change increases in the 1970s, that sent gold from 35 to 850, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, that rate of change declined. And at least through the 80s and 90s, which he is referring to, that rate of change uh, declined substantially, which was the, the headwind for gold. So even though, as he mentioned, the actual CPI index went up like 75% and wherever the percentage was, gold had this really awful bear market, Gold was really trading off the rate of change. Now, that said, today, when you look at gold, gold's $200, $250 off the highest level in its history, 4,000 years. So when you look at what whose purchasing power was better protected owning an ounce of gold versus owning a dollar bill 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and or almost now 50 since we went off the gold standard, it's clear that you know that 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 bar of gold will buy you a lot more things today than what a dollar was back then. Now worth a fraction of that. So I don't think there's a question of it being a store of value. Question though for our viewers is yeah, there's one thing to be sort of religious about it, and you have your coins and 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 you will hold them forever. And then there's obviously a constituency that okay, I want to make money. And is gold and silver a place to make money when, I, when you look out over the next couple of years? And I remain of the belief that it is. And I will admit being a, a, a bull, a big bull, that is certainly a frustrated bull because when you see what's going on in the macro landscape, to me, there are a lot of reasons why uh, the prices should be much higher. I mean, you look at silver, silver is still down about half from where it was in, in 2011, let alone where, where, where it was in 1980. At the spike peak, and uh, gold, 
at 1800 and while it's near the highs, it's still $100 less than where it was in September 2011. And you just scratch your, 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 your head and say, why isn't it much higher? So I am a frustrated metals holder. But when I look at, try to look at this from an object, objective point of view, because I also want to uh, try to question myself and whether I'm wrong, and I look at the fundamentals, and I compare the fundamentals today from, let's go back to 2011. 2011, there was no such thing other than a textbook about negative interest rates. Right. Yes, Bernanke went, went on that, that QE ride that the, the, the Japanese sort of uh, uh, really kicked into gear, but the ECB wasn't even there yet. Uh, the Bank of England, yeah, they were there, but you know, in a small way. And even, even, even Bernanke, who, it was, he was very defensive about QE. It was, yeah, we're doing it, but we're going to stop it. Remember, the first two QEs, there was no taper. He, they basically told us it's ending on this day both for QE1 and QE2. So you look at silver went to 50 then, gold was 1900 then, and then you look at today with still north of 10 trillion of negative yielding securities, uh, zero rates that are, that are back in the US and, and even Reserve Bank of Australia that, that believed in positive real rates for decades, you know, succumbed to the peer pressure of, of negative real rates and and, um, and, and, and other countries and, and the size of balance sheets and, and you see where we are. And now you actually have uh, real inflation that is now accelerating to the rate of change argument. Right. Everything points to, to me that we're in a, still in a bull market in gold and silver that started in December 2015 when gold sat at 1050. And here we are, you know, 80% higher. And that this bull market still has room to run on the upside. And at the end of the day, you know, I talked about a lot of different factors, but gold's still going to trade off real rates. It's going to trade off the direction of the U.S. dollar and other fiat currencies. Well, if I'm right that inflation is going to remain sticky and that, yes, from a rate of change basis, we will slow down. But I argue maybe to a three to four percent type inflation rate, which is well above that anybody is used to uh, that weren't around in the 1970s. And level of global interest rates are not certainly not prepared for three to four percent type persistent inflation, you will right. get another look down in, in real rates. And I argue that inflation is typically currency negative on top of the still very wide budget and, and trade deficits of the US that any dollar rally that we that we might have and we've had a recent one uh, isn't going far and that um, this will be dollar negative. So uh, that will then kickstart this bull market again in gold and silver, which I want to th think optimistically that what we've seen since last summer is a consolidation of the of the move uh, right. that saw sharp rallies last summer and took gold to above 2000 last summer. Yeah. And that they're sort of just recharging their batteries for another move. Yeah. Uh, Peter, I just want to jump in and get one question from our viewers uh, answered uh, during this session before we wrap up here. Uh, and this is a question that comes to us uh, from Gregory. This is something that I think is very much right up your alley, Peter. Uh, the question is, is the higher positive nominal rate on the reverse repo a form of tightening? And can we see more of that coming in? I would only add one question uh, or one point to that, which is for people who aren't familiar with the reverse repo market, what does it mean and why is it significant as a mechanism for monetary policy in the United States? So the Fed essentially created it to create a floor for the Fed funds rate. Because remember, the Fed funds rate pre 
financial crisis was was one number. It was it was one percent. It was one and a quarter. It was one and a half. And then the Fed created sort of a, a band, a range, and they were happy as long as it traded within this range. And once they, um, well, before I get to that, and and they they use the reverse repo rate to sort of balance out the floor of that range. Uh, so it wouldn't slip below that range. So here we are now with rates at zero to, to technically 25 basis points. And the Fed was worried that the shortage of paper, the very high levels of the, the Treasury general account and QE taking basically supply off the market, that there would be all this demand uh, uh, of, of cash for a home that we would see uh, the reserve, reserve repo rate go below zero, or, or I should say that was going to be kept at zero, but market rates, short rates fall below zero, and then create its own problem because money markets would then have a problem if they had rates at, at below zero. So by going to five basis points, that was just their way of preventing us from seeing negative rates on the on the very short end. Uh, it had nothing to do with their desire to taper, just as selling corporate bonds really wasn't uh, a form of tapering. It was just you know, there was just no use for that 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 program to begin with. So while people want to look at the the reserve the the the, the reverse repo rate and the size of it as, as a potential problem, I look at more as it is a problem, but it's just a symptom of of what really the problem is. Because mm. the Fed can keep absorbing all this money, and it is astonishing that it's still every day almost a trillion dollars. But as long as they're there. Uh, you know that's a counterparty that that people can rely on, but it is it is it does show you how upside down this financial system they've created. I mean, they basically broken the the market in the sense that they are taking securities off the market via QE and then shoveling them back out via this program. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, and but again, I don't see that leading to a problem. I just think that it's just reflective of of a, of a, of a market that's broken. Just as sometimes in the JGB market in Japan, no bonds trade because they, they you know, they killed the market there. Yeah. Peter, that's a, a great answer, an important answer, and an answer that I don't think we're ever going to see anywhere else on the other major financial networks in terms of the depth uh, and the explanation for why it is so significant to understand uh, the mechanisms of monetary policy and how they influence uh, the broader macroeconomy and, of course, financial markets. Jack, Peter, thank you both so very much for joining us today. It was a great conversation, as always. I uh, hope you can come back soon, Peter. Thanks, guys. Anytime. Thanks Bye, for guys. watching, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.